continue our study on the armor of God with the second piece being the breastplate of righteousness. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here with us this morning. We thank you for your word which you have given to us, the bread of life. We pray, Lord, that as we feed on it this morning, that you will nourish our souls through it, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, and give us obedient spirits to respond to what you would speak to each one of us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the story is told that on one occasion, the notorious Napoleon Bonaparte ordered a bulletproof coat be made for him. When the craftsman that he had tasked with this uh, job to make a bulletproof coat had completed it and delivered it to the French emperor, he looked at it and, and being presented with this coat, Napoleon then asked the craftsman if he was absolutely certain that this coat would save him from a would-be assassin's bullet. To which the craftsman solemnly affirmed that yes, it would that, in fact, he would stake his life on it. And so immediately, Napoleon then ordered that the craftsman put the bulletproof coat on himself. And then, much to the craftsman's dismay, Napoleon proceeded to draw a revolver and fired six shots, one after the other, into the craftsman's chest. When the smoke had cleared and Napoleon saw that the coat had indeed repelled the shots and that the craftsman was still standing on his two feet, he congratulated the stunned man on a job well done and sent him on his way. Now, how would you like working for him, eh? <laughs> let's, see, let's see if this is actually true, that you would stake your life on it. Well, returning now to our key passage we've looked at many times in this series already in Ephesians 6 and verse 14, it's one crisp line where Paul commands us, to stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. We looked at that last time. And now the second piece with the breastplate of righteousness in place. The breastplate of righteousness in place. Now in this next slide you'll see a depiction of a Roman breastplate. A piece of armor that uh, some, some of them were made out of metal plates. That is what would be required of us. And as Romans chapter 3 and verses 9 and 10 says, What then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Greeks alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So, you see, if the standard for our personal righteousness was to only compare ourselves to other people around us, then maybe we could do okay. You know, if we're being graded on the curve, maybe some of us would say, yeah, we're, we're pretty advanced. We're ahead of the curve. But when the biblical standard of righteousness is God himself, then even the most religious and devout and pious among us will still fall miserably short. For there is no one righteous, not even one. So that means not you, not me, not anyone can claim perfect righteousness as God is perfectly righteous. But sadly, many people refuse to accept this as the standard for righteousness. 
And so they still try to be righteous by their own human efforts according to their own standards rather than according to God's. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 22 and verses 1 to 14. We had it read for us earlier this morning, so we're not going to reread the whole passage. But there we find the parable of the wedding feast. And here in this next slide, we'll see an artist's depiction of the climax of this wedding feast, and we'll get to that in a moment. I'll, I'll kind of walk through this parable just so we have the context of what this parable is about. Now, the parable begins in verses 1 to 3, setting the stage with a king who represents God the Father. And this king has prepared a wedding feast for his son, who of course represents Jesus, the son. The king then sends his servants out, and that would represent the prophets of old, the Old Testament prophets. He has sent them out to invite his guests, who would represent the Jewish nation of Israel. He, he invites them to come to the wedding feast of his son. Prophets are sent out, the invitations are given, the RSVP dates are said, you know, please return, and they blow it off. We're not coming, and, and they just refuse outright. So the king then, in verses 4 to 6, persists in sending out even more servants to invite, to persist in inviting the guests to come, insisting everything is prepared, the table is set, the, the food is ready, all you have to do is show up. But now the second time, they not only ignore the servants, but they begin to mistreat the servants and even kill some of them. Then in verse 7, the king is enraged by this, and he sends his army out to destroy those murderers and, interestingly, their city. And this is a direct reference to the city of Jerusalem. And it refers back to the first destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian army, which we read about in the Old Testament. And it also foreshadows its coming second destruction by the Romans, which would take place in A.D. 70. Then we proceeded to verses 8 to 10, where the king then sends his servants out to invite everyone to come, whether good or bad. And this represents the Gentiles. This would be all of the nations of the earth. Everyone, good or bad, it doesn't matter. You are now invited to come to the wedding feast. And so they begin to respond, and the wedding feast was filled with guests. Then in verses 11 and 12, the king arrives to meet these guests and as he meets these guests, he immediately notices one man who stands out. And this man stands out because he is not wearing the appropriate wedding garment. And so the king asks this man, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And to this, the man was speechless. He had no reply. Then in verse 13, the king then tells his servants, Tie him up, hand and foot, and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, at first reading, this exchange here with this man who's not wearing the appropriate garment might seem somewhat unfair. And it might seem like us like an unrealistic expectation that this man would be able to afford a fancy wedding garment and let alone that by not wearing it, he would be tied up and cast out into the outer darkness. But we have to understand the culture of that day to understand the, the full exchange of what's happening here between the king and this man. For you see, in fact, it was the custom of that time and culture 
that the host of a wedding feast, especially someone as wealthy as a king who is hosting a wedding feast, the custom was that that host would provide a wedding garment for his invited guests at the door. So, so there was no expectation that you had to go out and buy some expensive garment to come to this feast. If you were invited, the expectation was that the garment would be provided for you at the door. So there was simply no valid excuse for this man not wearing the proper wedding garment. And therefore, when he is asked about why aren't you wearing one, how did you get in here without one, notice he had no reply. He was speechless because there was no valid excuse he could give. And so subsequently, as we see in the, in the picture, the king points at the man and tells his servants, tie him up and cast him into the darkness, which clearly in this entire parable, represents hell. Now, why did that man refuse the king's generous offering of a wedding garment? Well, it's clear that the man thought that his own clothing was good enough and that he didn't need the king's garment to be worthy to get into this feast. Now, in much the same way, many people believe that they can be righteous enough by their own effort and their own merit that they can be good enough to enter God's kingdom of heaven. Even the man in Jesus' parable was somehow able to convince the king's servants at the door that what he already was wearing was sufficient to let him enter because clearly the servants had let him in. And likewise today, there are people who can look like and talk like and act like a follower of Christ. And like the Pharisees who constantly confronted Jesus... They may do those outer acts of religion so well that everyone else thinks that certainly they must be right with God. They they must be righteous. They must be saved. But while people can be somewhat easy to convince, the king is not. For the king immediately saw that this man was not wearing the proper garment. He immediately saw it, though everyone else was tricked And thought, yeah, he's in. He's got to be in. He's here. But the king knew the difference. He would not be deceived. And God is the king. And God, as he looks at us, he immediately sees and knows who is clothed in Christ's righteousness and who is clothed in their own self-righteousness. Someone once asked an evangelist, Who is the hardest person to reach with the gospel? Is it an atheist or an agnostic? To which the evangelist replied, Neither. The hardest person to reach with the gospel is the religious person who goes to church every Sunday and thinks that they're already good enough. That is the hardest person to reach with the gospel. We see that with the Pharisees throughout Jesus' ministry. In Isaiah 64 and verse 6, the prophet tells us, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So you see, on that day when any person stands dressed in their own righteousness, their own clothing before God, They will be in for the shock of a lifetime. When their self-righteousness that they thought was sufficient 
will be exposed for the filthy rags that they truly are. And they will be rendered speechless when God asks them, Friend, how did you get in here without the wedding garment that I offered to you? How can you come in here without Jesus? And there will be no reply. There will be no excuse. Each one will be rendered speechless. For you see, God has mercifully provided us with Jesus, with his righteousness, as a free gift of his grace. And that makes all the difference. And so the question now becomes, how then do you and I receive God's righteousness? How do we receive it? Well, we must first recognize that we are utterly helpless to save ourselves. So long as we still think that there's a little bit of our righteousness that we can contribute to this equation, then we're we're lost from the get-go. We have to humble ourselves to recognize there is nothing good we can bring. There is no righteousness that we can contribute. We are utterly helpless to save ourselves. Then, having recognized our, our lost condition, from that place of humility, we are then prepared to repent of our sin. Really and truly repent of our sin. And finally, place our faith in the Lord Jesus alone to save us. And the moment that we do that, his perfect righteousness is imputed to us whereby we are justified and declared righteous and worthy to be welcomed into God's holy presence without fault and with great joy. Now, I know there was a lot of big words I used in there, so let's unpack that a little bit. What do those words all mean? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 helps us to understand this concept of what happens when we place our faith in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin... That is Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And that is when he died upon the cross, the perfect spotless Lamb. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him, that is Jesus, we, you and I, might become the righteousness of God. So when we say that Jesus' righteousness was imputed to us, it means that a trade happened where we exchanged the entire list of all of our sins, past, present, and future, and we exchanged it for Jesus' perfect righteousness. So in this exchange, exchange, Jesus took our sins upon himself. They were imputed to him upon the cross, And he then gave us his righteousness, which was imputed to us through faith. He gives us his righteousness to wear in exchange. So it's like we gave him our filthy rags, and he gave us a spotless wedding garment in return. And so in this analogy, we can then say that that spotless wedding garment, you can liken it to the breastplate of righteousness. In Philippians 3 and verse 9, Paul writes this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that's referring to works or effort, but a righteousness that is through faith in Christ. That righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. So here we see it clearly spelled out. If you pursue righteousness through the works, through the effort of the law, 
you will come up short, you will come up wanting. You cannot make it. It is simply and utterly impossible. The only way is on the basis of faith. And this exchange that happens when we place our faith in Christ, we give him our filthy rags, and he gives us his righteous robes of the wedding garments. And so when this happens, the Bible would then say you are fully justified. So justified is a legal term, which means that you are now pardoned of the condemnation of your sin. But you're not only pardoned of the condemnation of your sin once you're justified, but it goes further to say that you are now so completely pure and innocent that it's just as if you never sinned in the first place. That's how you can remember the word, justified, just as if you never sinned in the first place. Romans 5 verse 1 says of this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access into this grace in which we now stand. Of this tremendous truth, Scott Hubbard writes the following. If you are in Christ, you have been justified, eternally, irreversibly, gloriously. God has spoken his everlasting sentence over your soul. Through faith alone, on the basis of the death and life of Jesus Christ alone, you are not guilty, but righteous. Not hell-bound, but heaven-bound. Not condemned, but justified. You no longer need wonder what judgment day will hold for you with fear. Though men, devils, and disorderly conscience may accuse us at times, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. Let your soul sigh with relief. I am justified. So my friends, let me take just this moment now to ask you, what are you wearing today? No, I'm not talking about your Sunday clothing. I'm talking about your spiritual clothing. What are you wearing today? Are you still wearing your own righteousness or are you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? For on the day that you stand before the King of Kings, only one of those two garments will qualify you as worthy to enter into the wedding feast of the Lamb. Only one of them. While the other filthy rags are only worthy to have you to be cast into the outer darkness and separated from God's glorious presence forever. So which garment will you wear? It makes all the difference. So let me encourage you that if you realize today that you are still wearing your own self-righteousness, hoping that somehow it will be good enough, then let me encourage you to repent of that self-deceit and to put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you, for he alone is enough. He alone is sufficient. So now we come back to the question I asked at the outset. How do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? Well, we've just answered the first part. We do so by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we are justified as righteous before God, worthy and welcome to enter his presence. But now there is a second part, a, a practical part of putting on the breastplate of righteousness. The first part is about our justification, and the second part is now about our sanctification. The first regards our 
positional righteousness as being already made perfect in Christ. It's a finished, uh, completed thing. We are justified. It doesn't need to happen again. It is a one-time event when we place our faith in Christ and we are declared justified. That is our position. But the second now is in regards to our practical righteousness as we seek to live it out. And this is where the real battle is fought against Satan and his accusations and the temptations of our old flesh every single day of our lives. For even though positionally we are saints, while still in this body, we are not yet fully sanctified. We're not yet fully perfected. And we will not be until we are with Jesus on the day of completion, as we're told in Philippians 1 verse 6. And this means that though all the condemnation for our sin is gone, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is removed while in this flesh we still struggle with sin and the temptations thereof. As John MacArthur puts it, Imputed righteousness makes practical righteousness possible. But only obedience to the Lord makes practical righteousness a reality. So here now is our equation. Our will has to be engaged with what God is doing through our obedience. We have to obey. And it is right here where we struggle with obedience the most. Right at the weakest point in our lives. Right where there may be a gap, the smallest gap in our spiritual armor. That is where Satan will invariably attack us the most. He won't attack us where we're the strongest most of the time, except perhaps as a diversion, to then slip in that attack where we are the weakest, where there is a gap in the armor. And for this reason, that battle to develop our personal life of holiness is not a one-time thing, not a one-and-done deal, but rather it is an intense and daily battle. It is a daily fight where every morning when we wake up, we must renew our commitment for that day that we are going to go into that all-out battle one more day that for that next 24-hour period or whatever it will entail with a commitment to now live out in practical ways our obedience to God's word as he empowers us by his Holy Spirit to do so. And so every day we renew this commitment. Every day we enter this battlefield of living out the righteousness he has given to us as we work out God's holiness in our lives. And so it is here that the enemy will wage war against us, make no mistake about it. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 27, Paul says, do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil a foothold. Now, in this next slide, you'll see a picture of a, of a foothold. Footholds, as you can see in that picture, can be very small. You look at that picture and you think, where is the foothold in that picture? Well, if you look by the left shoe, there's a little crack in the wall. That is a foothold, believe it or not. Now, back in my camp counselor days at TMBC, I used to instruct wall climbing as a skill, and I was the instructor. And so part of that was I also enjoyed climbing myself. And in doing so, I learned that even those smallest nubs or a crack in the wall can serve as just enough of a foothold to help me advance onto the next more secure position. And that smallest crack or foothold in the wall can be the difference between me falling down or succeeding upward 
and conquering the wall. And so when when Paul writes to the Ephesians, do not give the devil a foothold, he is saying that in the same way, when we give the devil even the smallest toehold in our lives, whatever that might be, through an unrepented of sin, whether that sin is in action or an attitude, that can be the foothold that he uses to bring pain and destruction into our lives as he advances onward. But the good news is that by being diligent day by day to remove even the smallest footholds in our lives, this can lead to victories that we didn't expect. Of this daily battle, C.S. Lewis once wrote the following. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions that you and I make every single day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which, a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories that you never dreamed of. And an apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack that was otherwise impossible. And so here we see that so often the battles we think of are only the big ones, but Rather, it is the little ones, the small daily battles, the little skirmishes that we think, oh, it's no big deal if I do this, or it's no big deal if I do that. As he points out, those can be the strategic points that can lead to either victory down the road or defeat. And now, thankfully for each and every one of those daily battles, God has given us both the provision of the breastplate of righteousness that we go into battle already wearing justified by faith in Christ. And he has also given us his promise. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, this beautiful promise that every last follower of Christ should and can and should claim for themselves. If you haven't memorized it, I encourage you to do so. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 states, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. In Death Valley, there is a place known as Dante's View. There at Dante's View, you can look down to the lowest spot in the United States, the lowest spot below sea level in Death Valley. It's a depression in the earth 200 feet below sea level called Bad Water. But from that same spot, at Dante's view, you can also look upward to the highest peak in the United States, in the mainland of the United States, which is Mount Whitney. And it rises up to a height of 14,500 feet above sea level. Quite a contrast between the lowest point and the highest point. One way leads to the lowest and the other to the highest. And from that point called Dante's view, Any movement must be made in either one direction or the other. The path only leads one of two ways, either upward or downward. Now, likewise, there are many times in our lives when we too stand at that pivotal moment of temptation. It could happen today. In fact, invariably, it it may well. And at that moment of of temptation, on Dante's view, so to speak, we can always look upward to what God would have us do, but we can also tend to look downward to where the temptation would like to take us. 
And in that moment, it is almost always easier to trip along downhill into that sin rather than to climb up the narrow uphill path of obedience. And then at that moment of decision, Satan will always seek to make us feel like we are all alone in that moment and that God is far away. And that further, the, the sin isn't a really big deal. It's just a small thing. It's no, you know, it's no big deal. You'll, you'll just do it this one time. And he always downplays its significance. And God is far away, and why not just go downhill this one time? But the path uphill leads us to a cross and to an empty tomb. And the very one who hung on that cross and walked alive out of that empty tomb is the very one who is faithfully walking right beside us every step of the way, even though we can't see him. He is right there providing the way of escape and victory every single time if we look for it. And so when we do go the wrong way, and invariably when we do stumble and fall downhill at times, also remember that he is likewise right there to pick us up again the moment that we repent and to pick us up and restore us by his grace. Jesus is never far off. He is faithful. He will provide the way of escape. And so just as we must rely on Jesus alone to make us righteous, so too we must rely on Jesus alone to provide us with the strength to live out his righteousness every day and to give us victory in the battle day after day by his grace. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have done it all. You have provided the way for us to be made righteous. Needing to bring nothing, needing to add nothing, you have done it all. You, by your atoning death upon that cross, you took the full list of every last one of our sins, past, present, future. You took our filthy rags upon yourself. And even more, you exchanged your perfect righteousness and gave it to us as a simple gift of grace imparted to each one of us through faith in you alone. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have made it so simple and so plain. And I pray, Lord, for anyone who perhaps today, whether present or, or viewing this from afar, Lord, is convicted by the fact that they have not yet come to you in faith alone. They're still trying to bring their own works of righteousness to the equation. That in this moment they would recognize that error and repent of that and throw their faith upon you and you alone to save them, to make them righteous. And now, Lord, for, for us as we live out this process of sanctification, the battle can be fierce day after day, and sometimes it wears on us. And we get discouraged, and perhaps some are feeling that way today. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage each one of us for the battles yet ahead, that you are faithful, that you will never have us face a single battle alone, but that you walk with us, and that by your Spirit in us, you provide the way of escape each and every time, to not give the devil a foothold, but rather dismantle those, so that, Lord, we can walk forward into victory as more than conquerors through you. And so bless each one of us in our personal walks. Lord, thank you that it is you and you alone who make each one of us worthy to be called righteous. And therefore, we are armored in your righteousness to face the battles of the enemy 
to face his blows and to know that it is you who declares we are righteous. And so we thank you for this and we walk out in this confidence today. In Jesus' name, amen.